Welcome to Museums and Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hathman, and this is a podcast about Icelandic museums and museum culture. Around 300 years after the first settlements in Iceland, there lived a man whose ideas and writings would long outlive him, still inspiring people around the world nearly 800 years after he was assassinated by an angry king. That man was Snorri Sturluson. Born in 1179, Snorri was a politician, historian, poet, and novelist. His most influential work is probably the Prose Edda, also called the Younger Edda. This was his attempt to create a handbook of Old Norse mythology and poetic devices to keep the noble tradition of skaldic poetry alive and informed by its mythological sources. The Prose Edda has inspired so many artists and writers throughout the centuries, including the music you've been listening to at the beginning of this episode and J.R.R. Tolkien himself. Give the Edda a read and you will quickly see familiar names like Durin, Dvalin, Bilbo, Frodo, and Gandalf. On a gloomy afternoon late this fall, I drove into the tiny town of Reykholt to visit the site of Snorri's large farm and home. Of course, today, what remains of his house and facilities are buried or just visible as outlines in the grass. Except for his hot tub, that most Icelandic of amenities. It's still there. The name Reykholt means steam or smoke ridge. It's named after the pillars of geothermal steam billowing out of the earth all over Reykjadalur, the steam valley. I had an appointment at the Snorrstova, a center for research on Snorri and his works, built on the old farm site. Once at the center, I sat down with Sigrun Guttormsdotter Thormar, the center's project manager, to talk about Snorri, his home, and the impact of his work on Western culture. Sigrun turned out to have that knack and tendency for storytelling that is still part of the Icelandic culture and identity. I hope you enjoy her stories and this interview as much as I did. Welcome to Reykholt. Uh, we are placed in the west of Iceland, uh, around 120 kilometers from Reykjavik. It's always e easy to come here. Um, we, uh, we have very little snow, for example, during the winter time, so you can, you can always, always get here. Well, we have this center, medieval center, which is called Snorrostova, which was established in uh, 1998. It was formally opened uh, on the 29th of July, year 2000. 
by the king of Norway, Haraldur V, and the president of Iceland at that time, Oliver Ragnar Grimsson. Uh, the building is actually divided into uh, two parts. It's the medieval institute and uh, the church, which is, uh, yes, well, it's the ninth church on the site. There's been the church here since year 1000. The cornerstone to the church building was laid in 1988 by the president of Iceland at that time, which was Vigdis Vimbrodóttir, actually the first female president in the world. And with her uh, was uh, the king of Norway at that time, King Olaf, uh, the father of uh, King Harald. King Olaf was uh, a very popular king in Norway at all times, and uh, he died uh, 91 years old. His journey to Iceland uh, well, he was done well, shortly before his death. And it was the last journey that he, he was uh, on. There are many, uh, well, many funny stories from his uh, journey. Uh, I don't know how much you know about um, the roads in Iceland and infrastructure. I'm sure you've heard about that. Uh, we're always arguing about the in infrastructure that we have to do the roads and so on. And normally we just do roads uh, uh, when we have a lot of tourists that are complaining or we are having uh, a king to visit or something like that. So um, when it was uh, planned that uh, King Olaf was supposed to come here and um, be present when we laid, laid the cornerstone, there's a person from the minister in Reykjavik which calls uh, a minister here. And he asks, asks, well, tells the minister that they have decided in the minister in Reykjavik that they want to uh, pave the road from the highway one and up towards the valley, which was uh, a dirt road at that time in 1988. The pastor, of course, very uh, happy about that. And, um, and then the person from the ministry said, uh, there's just a couple of things I want to discuss with you uh, before before I hang on. Uh, I have uh, two things that you have to do for me before, because it is very important that everything looks nice when the king uh, arrives. So I want you to um, talk to the farmers here in the area, in the valley, and uh, ask them to remove all tractors and cars, which normally are are all around farms in Iceland. It was, well, it's some, maybe you think it's bad now, but it was much worse, you know, before. And to take all this old stuff and put it behind their farms so the king doesn't have to look at it when he comes driving. And one last thing, I want them to, uh, if they can paint their houses, but they don't have to paint all around because it's enough if they just paint the side that is facing the king's road. And I'm not joking, but this was all done, of course, and it was taken very seriously. And, uh, of course, you know that Icelandic farmers, they're always very busy. Uh, you know, they are uh, in, the, in, the, in the spring, the, they, the small lambs, they're, you know, being born. So a lot of work being done. And uh, in the fall, they are gathering sheep from the, from the valley. So they're always busy. But all this was done. But uh, when the king arrived, he actually came by helicopter. So that that is what is <laughs> that is what is nice about that story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just so that's terrible. They must have felt good. <laughs> well, um, King Olaf was a very uh, easygoing man, and he really had humor. And uh, I'm sure that even though he, you know, would look down and see everything, uh, uh, he wouldn't mention that he was uh, a very special person and a very easygoing man. I'm a big fan of Snorri, but for my listeners who are not familiar with Icelandic history and literature, who was Snorri Sturluson and why does he matter? Well, he is, of course, an extremely important man. Uh, I normally say that he is my employer. 
when I started to work here, my, my husband was sometimes so irritated because I was talking about this snorter all the time. And he says, well, this snorter, he's between us in, in, the, in the bed, <laughs> nearly, you know, he's, he's, he's here all the time. But he actually is, and he's very present, even though that he uh, died uh, 800 years ago. He's, uh, of course, extremely important because he wrote the Nothi mythology, and the Nothi mythology has been the inspiration to several artists and writers and composers through centuries. One of the most uh, famous, of course, uh, in recent time, Tolkien, was highly inspired by the Nothi mythology. And today, of course, uh, American movie makers uh, are highly inspired. Uh, well, most many, of course, are following the Game of Thrones and uh, many others, the Viking series uh, and so on, the uh, movie Thor. Richard Wagner, a German composer, of course, was inspired by the Northern mythology. And it's actually everywhere. Some say that uh, uh, the Northern mythology is the book that uh, has had most influence on the culture of the West after the Holy Bible. So this is quite important. Um, many people ask me, you know, where were his sources? You know, where did he get all these ideas from? And was he the only one that wrote the, down the Northern mythology? Uh, yes, well, actually, yeah, he was. Uh, the, uh, the, the Danish Saxo, he, of course, wrote a little bit um, Northern mythology, but it was uh, uh, different. Uh, Snorri's sources are mainly, of course, um, oral stories and also some old poetry. And some say that uh, that he must have added something from his own heart as well to make the story, uh, you know, to, to to glue the story and make it flow and make it uh, make make it exciting. But what is important is that he's write, he's writing this down 240 years or thereabout after Christianity in Iceland. So uh, all these old stories, people had started to forget them. Uh, so I'm sure he added something from himself. But uh, what is amazing is that a man at that time, which is, he is a good Christian, he's a good Catholic, nothing, uh, nothing uh, about that. But he's writing it because he is a, a scholar and he realizes that because of Christianity, people have started to forget the old myths. And he realizes, uh, which is really amazing, that uh, it's important that this is kept for the aftertime. Some say that he wrote two different editions of the Edda, one that was more compact and was used to uh, teach his uh, pupils about poetry and how to do poetry in the right way, and a full edition, which was uh, uh, supposed to be a, a sort of a lexicon or ins inspiration to others, like I mentioned before, Tolkien. Then this, this book, the Edda, is not his writing that as a scholar. And then he wrote another book uh, as a historian, which is the Heimskringla, which is a biography of the Norse kings, and it covers a period from around the 16th century and until around uh, 1200. His sources, old poetry, uh, older manuscripts, oral stories, and so on, and he writes it in, in the right time order, and uh, if people think that uh, Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones is exciting, this is uh, lots more heavier stuff, really exciting. Then he, uh, he wrote the first of the Aslanti sagas. This is the saga of Eils Gallagrimsson. And you might say that he is the one that invents the historical novel. And the sagas, for those who do not know, are historical novels about the first settlers here in Iceland. They are based on real events. They are based on the lives of real people. But of course, they are novels uh, being written um, around four, five hundred years after they occur. 
So he invented, well, he's, he's the author of the first Icelandic sagas. I'm a big fan of Age Saga. That's my favorite Icelandic saga, I think. Maybe. All right, now that I'm thinking, I probably have more favorites, but that one's really good too. You have an active church here at Reykholt. Why was there a church on a farm? Uh, I get this question actually all the time. And I think there are two reasons for actually why are there are so many churches in the countryside in Iceland. Of course, uh, I know the answer you were thinking of, which is, of course, the money and taxes. All independent farmers um, at that time, you know, before they had to pay 10% of their income. And uh, one-fourth of that income went to the landowner and one-fourth to um, the church, one-fourth to the bishopry, and one to the poor people. So if you were a landowner and owned the church, you would get half of it. So that could be a good, good, some good business, of course. Uh, but secondly, I think that in a country which is uh, so big and with weathers, like we have here in the wintertime, and, uh, you know, just farms randomly uh, in the area... It could simply be dangerous if you had to go, had, had a long way to go to church in the wintertime. And so it was very important that there were small churches all around. And a church is, of course, more than just a church. It's a community house. And people would meet, you know, every Sunday in the church. And it was important that you would be able to, to reach the church and wouldn't be stopped, you know, by weather and such in the winter. So I think that is also a reason. But it's always been like that, that um, a reverend has had uh, several churches in his district. For example, our reverend here, he has three churches that he attends to. So there's not mass here every Sunday in this church, but in some of the other churches maybe. But this church is uh, used for the whole area because it's big, and if we have bigger services and uh, big funerals, for example, then this church is used. But it's used also for concerts, so it's still it's a, co a community house, you know, for the area. So, in addition to the library, uh, you have spaces for artists and scholars to stay. Why have residential spaces? Well, it's very important for us because we are first of all a research institute, and we work very closely closely on different projects with several universities uh, all around the world, but of course uh, mainly in the Nordic countries. But we have scholars visiting all the time, and the need was here. And people get in, who are, you know, doing research in Snodis cultural inheritance, they get inspired by staying here. And they have access to this library, which is uh, where we have, for example, have the, the biggest collection of Eddas in the world, different publications. Uh, we have many books from the 16th, 17th century, you know, publications in different languages. And they have, have, have access to this library while, while they're staying here and they can get inspired and they can also talk to uh, with those here in-house in who have great experience. Uh, for example, of course, our director and, and uh, our writer who is, uh, wrote Snodis biography, which is connected to the Institute as well, and he lives here in Rekholt. And the pastor here, of course, which is extremely knowledge, knowledgeable. So I, I think that uh, being here is an inspiration in itself. Here in the basement under the church tower, we have an exhibition about Snorri Sturluson's life and him as a person. The focus uh, um, for the exhibition is uh, on Snorri as a, a husband, as a father, and as a politician. So what you basically uh, learn is that you, you learn about his life, and you also learn about uh, excavations. How was life here? How, how did he live here? How was his housing? This was actually pretty cool. You know, he had a pretty nice house.
The exhibition is, uh, is here because there was a need for it. The Institute of the Church came first. But uh, people were just wandering around here. You know, people came here and they were wandering around. Uh, they uh, were banging on the doors and asking. And uh, so it was actually, you know, the, we are not a, a, a tourist place as such. That, that is not the, the important thing. A non-profit institution with a purpose to do research since not its culture and inheritance, to preserve it and to publish it and give lectures. And that is the main you know, the main thing here in this house. But because of the need from uh, outside, you know, people who already came here, then the decision was taken to uh, open the exhibition. It contributes a little bit, you know, financially to the Institute, which is good. And all, all this income is used for preserving the area and uh, to put signs and, you know, always to do things better. What makes uh, this place special is that this is uh, the place with this man he lived, where he wrote his masterpieces, which have been uh, so important to the whole world. And this is where he was killed. This is where he died, quite dramatically. Before I ask you to tell the story of his death, because that's a juicy one, I think it's interesting that I just came from the Haldor Laxis Museum, where you can also walk around and feel the space in which Haldor Laxis became inspired and go on the walk, same walk he took to think of his book ideas, and then to come here and be able to do the same thing um, with a man who lived, you know, uh, seven, eight hundred years earlier. It's a wonderful thing to have the geography, the, the places of, of this literature preserved. Yeah, like I said, he is present. And uh, if you go outside to see his pool, which he had made, he had had his own hot pot outside his fortress, where, where he used to take a bath every every day, and and this is the real thing. This is a, a not a hot. This is not a hot pot uh, that is a replica or anything. It's a real thing. These are the real stones. This is where he he went and sat in, in this uh, hot pot and took his bath. So this is the real real site. But yes, he uh, he lived quite a juicy life here, definitely. So would you tell me the story briefly of his death? Just his death. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you can tell me anything else you want, but I, I think it's a great story of how he was. It's kind of a story of intrigue and political intrigue and assassination. Yes, and yes, yes. Because like I said, if you think that Game of Thrones is exciting, uh, this is absolutely juicy stuff. So his family affairs were quite troubled, you know, and well, who doesn't have a troubled family? But uh, he definitely was. Well, first of all, Snorri was an extremely wealthy man. I sometimes say when I'm giving my lectures that there's a, a woman behind any, every man. Uh, he didn't have any money of his own in the beginning, so he, he uh, married a, a, a rich heir. And that's how he got himself started. He became involved in, in politics, and uh, politics, of course, can be dangerous. They were dangerous back then, and they still are. Not everybody agree on your politics. and well, Yeah, that's just how it is. He became the law speaker of Iceland. And for those who do not know, uh, Iceland uh, is the first, uh, you might say, what uh, democracy in the world or what comes closest to democracy. There were 39 lords in Iceland who were all uh, inherited their lordship, but they would elect their law speaker. And this law speaker would be elected for three years at a, at a time. And if he would be uh, doing a good job and he wanted to be re-elected, re uh, he, would, he would be so. And Snorri became the law speaker. 
So he was uh, he, he was a greedy man, both for wealth and for powers. Of course, he had this extremely expensive hobby of writing books, and he didn't have the church or the monastery to finance his uh, his uh, expensive hobby. So somebody he had to do it himself. He also wants to increase his powers by becoming acquainted with the kings of Norway, which he does. He travels to Norway the first time in 1218. He's there for two years. At that time, there are two kings in Norway, a young king, which is just a teenager. He's 14 years old, became king when his father was poisoned by his own stepmother. There are a lot of juicy stories in, uh, in Heimskringla, the book, book biography of the king, Norse kings. King Hakon is just 14 years old, and because of his young age, he has a, a, an assisting king, which is his uh, uncle. Uh, his uncle's uh, half-brother, you know, they were, uh, they were half and half, you know, all the time, because the uh, kings, of course, had many mistresses. Uh, so his half-brother had been king, been king, uh, king before. But, uh, so these were the two rulers of Norway. Uh, this uncle's name is Skule, and he's 30 years old. As not is around 40 years old at that time. Snorri is with the two kings for two years. Now, of course, I'm simplifying the story a lot, but uh, uh, they discuss a lot with Snorri that they want him to help them to get Iceland under their kingdom. Iceland didn't have a king. They wanted to help. So uh, they offered their help and <laughs> offered to become kings of Iceland. So generous. <laughs> Extremely generous. Snorri may be... Uh, uh, well, I, I like to make assemblances with uh, modern times. Uh, Snorri is a politician, and maybe he is the first cheaty politician in the world because he promises to fulfill the king's desire in, through his position as law speaker when he returns to Iceland. They are, of course, extremely grateful. They uh, give him a title in Norway, maybe a title of an earl, probably uh, followed with an estate in Norway, which gave him additional income. He sells home in a ship, which is uh, a present from the kings. It's nice if your friend gives you a yacht or something. Uh, the, king, <laughs> the ship is loaded with nice stuff like wine, and which he had become uh, pretty addicted to when he was staying with the kings, uh, um, imported European wine, and some nice, other nice things. And uh, when he comes home again, he's quite content with himself. But he doesn't really fulfill what he has promised to the kings. And this, of course, will haunt him. This is the main reason why he, uh, be well, why the king of Norway, many years later, considers him uh, being a traitor to his kingdom and um, actually orders, orders him, uh, maybe not directly executed, but he orders him uh, captured and brought back to Norway. And uh, he uh, writes a letter to uh, one of Snorri's former son-in-laws. Uh, his uh, Snorri's uh, children all had uh, unhappy marriages behind them. Uh, so this was a former son-in-law. And uh, he writes a letter to him and he uh, demands that he goes to Reykholt and uh, takes imprisoned Snorri and brings him back to Norway. And if there are any problems with that, he is allowed to kill him. And of course, this son-in-law, he has, uh, well, he has some ambitions becoming uh, the king's man and uh, an earl of Iceland. And now he has uh, a king's letter in the back pocket, which he uses for his own advantages. And uh, so that's not actually never had the chance. His, uh, well, the former son-in-law gathers uh, around 65 men. They wait until late evening. Then they attack the fortress. 65 men uh, on the on the late evening of 23rd of September in 1241. 
Snorri probably knew that they were on their way and he is uh, also probably uh, ready to meet his uh, maker. He doesn't do anything to defend himself. This is actually quite dramatically because uh, everybody was uh, away from the fortress. He's actually staying here alone with uh, a priest and uh, one good friend from Norway, which had been in the service of his good friend, uh, the older king of Norway. The men, they attacked the farm and... Uh, the son-in-law, uh, Gissur, he uh, orders his men to find Snorri and to kill him or to execute him. And that is actually what was done, not by his own hand, but he had some other men to do his dirty work. But Snorri never had the possibility uh, either neither to talk to him, to his former son-in-law, or to uh, go to Norway and talk to the king. He was just executed here and died here on the basement floor, 62 years old. That's a good story. And people thought Game of Thrones had some weird family relations. So many exes. So many exes in the Icelandic sagas. And they're all out for something else. Well, the <laughs> sagas, uh, sagas, they are about love and war. So they have all the ingredients for good stories. You know, when I, I lived, actually lived abroad for many years. And uh, as a child, I lived in Denmark for, for four years. And when I moved back to Iceland when I was 13 years old, my grandmother had bought uh, all the uh, Icelandic sagas in the original language. And she felt that my cultural uh, education was uh, a little bit, you know, uh, not, not so good after, after staying in Denmark. So she picked uh, the first one for me to read. And uh, it was the saga of Laxdæla. And she told me, this is a love story. And uh, this is the first one you have to read. Uh, so I read it in the original language. It was quite easy, as, as you probably know. It's uh, You can actually put a 10-year-old Icelandic schoolchild in before original texts who were written 1,000 years ago. They would understand. So then me and my grandmother, we would discuss it and she would explain. And uh, so this was the first one, and then we would take the rest of them. So I, I think that I think that about does it, unless there's anything else you want to say about this place. <laughs> I would like to tell them a little bit about his house because, um, you know, people maybe think that uh, Icelanders always were always very poor people living in small turf houses, uh, you know, like hobbits or something. <laughs> uh, but but that actually isn't so. From the settlement and until around year, uh, yeah, maybe thirteen hundred or fourteen hundred, Iceland was uh, a wealthy country. We were wealthy partly because of the trade with Greenland. And uh, life was actually very good here. Uh, the climate was uh, milder than today, and the population actually quite big, surprisingly big. Some say that it was maybe around 55 or even 60,000 people at that time. Just taken in comparison, uh, today we're just around 350,000 people. The population, of course, did, didn't grow. It actually uh, went down for, because of some bad things that happened later, uh, plagues and uh, volcanic eruptions and... Uh, well, kings, which, uh, which, of course, got the power in Iceland and, and being colonies ne never nice. So many things, bad things happened, but it's not as time. Uh, life was actually very good here. We had to take a short coffee break here. Icelanders drink little cups of coffee all throughout the day. And since we've been talking for a while at this point, we had to stop to brew another cup. <laughs> Do you want another cup? No, I'm good, thanks. Okay. And back to the story. What is so amazing is that uh, 
uh, like I said, he was the, he lived a good life here and was extremely wealthy. He, he uh, when he comes back from Norway, he actually imports partly pre-made houses or material for houses from Norway, and these houses are put uh, up in a fortress, which is made. You know, he imports lumber for making a wall around the fortress as well, and he builds a staff church uh, on the site, which uh, is the third church here in Reykjavik, and he has the pool made. Pool is made with stones, you know, round uh, in the sides and in the bottom. And he also has a conduct made from a hot spring, which is 120 meters from the, the pool. The conduct is made with uh, of stone, which are tightened with clay, and then they are dug down, you know, and uh, they put turf and grass on top of it. And it leads the water from the hot spring directly to the pool. The water in the pool, a lot of it, and, you know, extremely wonderful 40-degree water, and which he used every day. What I think is amazing is that this conduct is still fully functional. 800-year-old pipeline, no hanky-panky inside it or anything. You know, you, you buy a house today, and uh, if it's 40 or 50 years old, you have to change all the plumbing. Not to mention, of course, manuscripts and our hard, hard disks from the computers. You know, we are reading, you know, 1,000-year-old manuscripts here in Iceland. One other thing that they uh, actually found out here during excavations, because there were excavations here from 98 to 2007, they discovered a different pipeline from the hot spring, which was not intended for water, but for steam. So can you guess what that was supposed to Sauna? Well, uh, no, probably not. Uh, probably a brewery. Uh, the Icelanders, they didn't do sauna, you know. But uh, actually, the, the steam from the hot spring was led through this pipeline into a building where there was uh, some uh, stone floor. They think that on the top of the stone floor was a wooden floor, so that the steam was led between the two floors, uh, actually, you know, floor heating. We don't know if there were any circulations, you know, uh, like the Romans did. We have no proof of that. That would just be a guessing. But the archaeologist, he, he found some uh, dead insects, uh, for, foreign insects, on the stone floor. And she thinks that they were brought here by imported grain, which was used for making beer. So he was probably uh, developing a method to uh, brew more efficiently, you know, by using the steam. That's so cool. Be well, there, now there's a brewery just up the street, right? Uh, Stevia, which I thought I saw that on the way in. There's just like a random brewery here. I had some of theirs in Borgenized the other day. There's actually, I was just uh, recently in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and they have hot springs, nothing like here, but they have a brewery that uses the hot water to make the uh, to make the beer. So connections across time and history. But a, I, I hadn't heard about the brewery here. That's that's really cool. Yeah, and and one thing when you're talking you're talking about uh, hot water in in brewing, there's never been any cold water here in Reykjavik. Uh, getting water, you know, fresh cold water has always been very difficult here. And today uh, the housing here with there are around forty seven residents here and that not on the side, which are of course mostly people, you know, working for the institute or the hotel here. But uh, they have to get the cold water through a six kilometer long pipeline. Before, and it's not his time, they would use the hot water, the thermal water, and they would just cool it down. And they would drink that. And that was the only possibility. So that was probably also used for the brewing. I'll have to let the people in Arkansas know that they are not as original as they thought. <laughs> Snorri's been there, done that. The music in this episode is by the Icelandic German band Ausstieder Liefsens, who take their inspiration from the Old Norse literature that we've been talking about in this episode. 
As always, you can visit my website, hethman.com. That's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com to find links to Ausstede Liefsen's music, photos of the Snorrestova, and other behind-the-scenes and further reading goodies, including links to free PDFs of Snorri's work and other sagas in translation. If you liked this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes of Museums and Strange Places, please give me a review on iTunes or send me a tweet to let me know what you think at Hannah underscore RFH. I make this all by myself here in Iceland, so it's great to hear from people who are enjoying what I've been doing so far. Stay tuned for the next episode of Museums in Strange Places, a visit to a remarkable little geology museum housed in a spare room in a gas station on the south coast of Iceland. Mm-hmm.